I don't even think my uh, parents knew that I was going to be doing this, so it's a big, big surprise uh, this morning. Uh, that song is beautiful. It's great, great truth. I think a lot of times we sing songs that are uh, about fighting a battle that we're currently in, but we forget a lot of times that the battle has already been won by Christ. And so what a great, great reminder and great song uh, that is. If you don't know me, my name is Jack Tyner. I'm on staff here uh, with the college ministry. Uh, I'm the collegiate resident, I think is my official title. But uh, I serve with the college and young adults ministry here, and it is just a pleasure uh, to bring God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Students who are at D-Now this weekend, you went over four countercultural teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Uh, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but you looked at four of them. And so this morning, we're going to look at another teaching of Jesus. And I would argue that there's no more countercultural teaching than the one we're about to look at this morning, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. So let's start this morning by simply reading the passage all the way through. I'll read it out loud, and it looks like you can follow along on the screen maybe, uh, or in your copy of Scripture. So let's read God's Word together. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. God, out of a time of worship, God, where we proclaimed your name, God, your beautiful, glorious, holy name. Father, we pray that you would be lifted high this morning. God, I pray uh, that you would guard my heart against any pride that may slip in. Father, this stage is like a virus sometimes. Lord, protect my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray uh, that you would speak through me, God, that you would prepare the hearts and minds of the people who are in this room to hear your word. Lord, we know that the word of God does not return void. So God, we pray that your spirit would move. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever met somebody who when they pray, it sounds like they have some sort of like special direct line to God? I mean, like they'll start praying and you're like, whoa, heaven just got called down into the room or something. I don't know. Like something special is happening right now. In Luke chapter 11, we see a similar response uh, with the disciples. Jesus comes back from praying as he got alone to pray like he often did. And the disciples request to him, Lord, teach us to pray. That was pretty impressive. Lord, teach us to pray. And this seems like an interesting request when you look through the grand narrative of the Gospels. I mean, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second. If you could be with Jesus in the flesh, 24-7, 365, what would you want to know how to do? I think if I had the chance, I would probably, in my pride, ask, like, Lord, how do we draw large crowds? How do we fill this building up? Or, like, Lord, how do I cast out demons? That was pretty cool. Or the loaves and fishes thing. <laughs> like, that's pretty awesome. But the disciples found that the most formative thing that Jesus did in his ministry was when he got alone to pray. It was when he prayed. 
And as you look through the Gospels, this request of the disciples starts to seem more and more reasonable because you start to count. Jesus gets alone to pray a lot. In fact, he gets alone to pray 36 times. And if it was important enough that the disciples to learn how to pray, who saw him do all these great things, and out of all those great things, they wanted to know how to pray, then what does that mean for us today? What should be the most important thing to us? I'm afraid that you and I have become detached from the power and significance of prayer. How often do you and I slip into prayerlessness when life is good and only pray when life starts to get bad? How often do you and I neglect praying because we simply don't know what to pray? How often do we avoid prayer because if we're being honest, it means we have to get along with God. Or maybe we just can't fit it into our busy schedules. Tim Keller says, to fail to pray, then, is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. Prayer is vital to the growth in the Christian life. But do we even know how or what to pray for? Do we know why we pray? The good news is, in Luke chapter 11... (laughs) Jesus teaches us how to pray. If it was important enough for the writers of the Gospels to mention that Jesus went away by himself to pray, which seems like a really menial task, then it deserves our attention and devotion. So this morning, we're simply going to just look at this one request to the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And so right now, I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes, and you can out loud or in your heart just simply say this one sentence, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. So how do we pray? How do we become people of powerful prayer? Number one, I want you to see through this prayer of Jesus, start with God. Start with God. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. After the disciples have asked Jesus how to pray, Jesus starts in an interesting, interesting way. He essentially just says, just, just look at God for a second. Now, this is really interesting to me because it immediately, right off the bat, challenges the way that you and I approach God in prayer. It immediately takes away every presupposition that says, what I have to say later on is more important than this in the beginning. Let's be real. We usually try to skip over seeing God to get to the good stuff, to get to what we need, to get to what we want to ask for. You and I try to move past God in prayer so quickly so that we can start asking for things. But Jesus sees it uh, like a Mission Impossible movie. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these movies. I think the James Bond movies are the same way, where you start the movie and it shows you this really cool, like, kind of clip at the beginning, and then you have to sit through 10 minutes of credits at the beginning of the movie for some reason. And so what do you and I usually do? We just, if we're watching it at home on Netflix, or we just skip right through that because, you know, we don't really want to see that part of it. What I'm not advocating for right now is for you to actually just sit through the credits because those are really, really boring, and movies like that are terrible. (laughs) 
But what I'm trying to get you to see is that in this short prayer, I mean, if you look at this prayer of Jesus, this is a short prayer. A lot of us pray longer than this when we ask God to bless our food. But in this super short prayer of Jesus, he spends more time on God than you and I do. He spends more time gazing at his glory. Actually, one-sixth of this prayer is Jesus just looking at God. Jesus, then, must think that starting with God is important. But why is it important to start with God in prayer? When you and I start with God, who he is and what he's like, we fully understand what is of importance in the kingdom. When you and I start with God, who he is and what he's like, we fully understand what's of importance in the kingdom. And we see Jesus referring to God in this passage in a really countercultural way. In this, Jesus calls him Father. Jesus calls him Father. This is how he addresses God. And this is absolutely transformational in the way that we pray and in the way that we approach the Christian life as a whole. J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, then in his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you see yourself as God's child? Do you see God as your father? Do you see God as your father when you pray? What a beautiful truth this is that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, is teaching you to pray to God as father. I understand for some of you this may be a painful reality. Maybe you didn't have a good father. Maybe even you had an abusive father. Or maybe you didn't have a dad in the picture at all. But listen to me. God the Father is not this way. God the Father is not this way. And I'm very, very sorry that that has been the reality that you have lived. But God our Father is different. Listen to how Jesus talks about the Father further down in verses 9 through 13. He says, And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he who asks for good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Jesus, the Son of God, invites you and I into deep relationship with the Father through prayer. You have been given, if you're a follower of Jesus, the right to relationship with God as a father and son or a father and daughter. You have been saved not only so that you can go to heaven when you die, even though that is absolutely true. It's what we just sang, I know how the story ends. It is the motivation to keep going today, but so that you can have this relationship with God right now in this life. Today, when you pray, because God loves you and desires a relationship with you. Now, some of you may be saying, if you're smart and want to like nitpick, Father isn't a name. 
It's a title. And Jesus says, hallowed be your name. For some of you, I mean, I'll even point out God is a title too, not a name. So what is the name that Jesus is talking about? Do you remember as a kid uh, when you have that moment of realization where you realize that you don't actually know the name of somebody that's in your family? My grandfather is a deacon here. Uh, he teaches a Sunday school class. He's uh, very well established in this church. He serves this church well. And when I hear people call him Ken Lobby, I kind of have to like second guess myself because to me, he's Poppy. He always has been. I kind of thought for a minute when I came into the world that everybody stopped and looked. It's like, well, what is he going to call him? And that's what we're going to call him from now on. But that's not the case at all. So his name is Ken Lobby, not Poppy. And I think most of us uh, have an experience like that where we realize, oh, that's not their real name. Do we do this with God? You may call him, this is a personal favorite, like most gracious heavenly father or precious savior or wonderful Lord. But do you know his name? The beautiful name of God? God calls himself Yahweh. Yahweh. Exodus 34, God essentially is introducing himself to Moses. We went over this in Crossroads this past week, uh, but not really introducing himself because he's already, they've chatted a few times. Um, he's like reintroducing himself in his fullness and in his glory. And God says this about his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Understand, this is the God we are calling Father. That is his name. And his name means that he carries with him certain things that we have to understand in prayer. For example, he is the most merciful, the most gracious, the most slow to anger, abounding in the most steadfast love and the most faithfulness. It goes on to say, for generations and generations. We have to recognize this when we approach God in prayer. Who God is is important. Do you take time to recognize his goodness when you pray? I'm preaching to myself here. I know I certainly don't. Do we take time to look at God when we pray? Tyler Staten, founder of the 24-7 prayer movement and pastor of Bridgetown Church, says this. When we remember who God is, when we experience his goodness, we recover our identities as well. You fully understand who you are when you stop in prayer and look at who God is. You can't understand who you are if you don't stop and look at who God is in prayer. This is essential. This means that before you get on to the things that you need, and you do need these things, before you get on to, Lord, give me strength to face the day, look at the one who gives strength to face the day. When you are going to ask for, for uh, patience, look at the God who is patient. Look at the God who is kind. Start in your prayer looking straight at God. When we start with God in prayer, we start to realize that life isn't about us at all. It's about him. 
his glory, his praise. And lean in here. When you start your prayer with God, it takes away the burden of figuring out the meaning of life from you, and it places it on God. It makes the God the reason for existence. So my plea to you today is this. Jesus says, when you pray, start with God. Secondly, we see Jesus saying, plead for his kingdom. He prays next, your kingdom come. This point in Jesus' prayer is what's called intercessory prayer. It's a word that theologians uh, use uh, to call like interceding on behalf of other people, calling God's kingdom into our lives. Where Jesus pleads with God to invade the space that he occupies. That God would send his kingdom to earth. Uh, And many of you are familiar with the Matthew 6 version of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you pray for God's kingdom to invade your space? Do you pray for God's kingdom to invade your life? I think you and I live a lot of times with this subconscious fear that God doesn't actually respond to our prayers. This is a strange ideology that has crept into our thinking over the last few hundred years, and you can, you can trace it back and back and back. Uh, but we really, deep down, don't really know if God hears us or responds to us. And this thought manifested in your life looks like this. If God already knows what's going to happen, why should I pray? Why should I even ask God for things? And this is a legitimate question if you have the fear that God doesn't respond to his people. But let me fill you with confidence this morning and say, God hears the prayers of his people. God moves when you ask him to move. When you ask for the kingdom of God to come into your life, to invade the space that you occupy, he's going to respond. This fear that God doesn't hear you, that he doesn't respond to you, is an attack strategically put into your minds by the enemy so that you will stop asking God for his kingdom to come. The enemy does not want you to believe this, but I'm telling you today, Jesus does. Jesus does. Look at the life of Moses. God said he would not go with the Israelites into the promised land, but instead he was going to send an angel And Moses cries out to God and begs God, please go with us. And it says God relented of his anger. And there are all sorts of pastors and theologians who are going to try to explain that away using some sort of intellectual gymnastics, but I'm telling you today, it's just that, intellectual gymnastics. God responds to the prayers of his people. What about Elijah, who prayed to God that he would withhold the rain And God withheld rain for three years and six months. And when Elijah prayed again that God would bring rain, God immediately opened up the heavens and brought rain. God responds to the prayers of his people. Manly Beasley, who was a pastor, used to go into the woods and pray for hours upon hours that the kingdom of God would come. And here's what would happen. He would not leave until he received an answer. Manly Beasley was so convinced that God heard and responded to the prayers of his people that he would wait for a response, and he would get one. God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. 
And there are hundreds upon hundreds of stories of God doing this very same thing. When we ask for God to invade our lives, he does. When we ask for the kingdom of God to invade our space, he does. One theologian famously said, history belongs to the intercessors. Do we want to change the course of history in Pensacola, Florida? Pray for the kingdom of God to move in Pensacola, Florida. Do you want to see your family changed forever and ever? We're talking generational shift. Pray the kingdom of God in your family. Do you want to see your enemies be radically transformed by love? Pray that the kingdom of God would invade the lives of your enemies. This is our prayer. Your kingdom come, Father. Your kingdom come. Ask for God to invade your space with his kingdom. Thirdly, we see that Jesus teaches us to seek his provision. Jesus prays, give us each day our daily bread. This one's a little difficult for us today to understand because you and I live in one of the most easy times to be alive in the history of the world. If you want to uh, make a nice lunch, you simply go to Publix, buy your food, go home, make a nourishing meal for your family. I prefer a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, But it's easy to get the things that we need. We lack dependence on God because we think that we can do it on our own. Now, I would be ignorant to think that this prayer for daily bread wouldn't be very, very real for some of you. Some of you do lack the physical needs to do these things. It's not easy for you. You don't have much. Relying on daily bread is a very real reality. You try to work hard, but the economy is just too tough right now. You work really, really hard, but your child is still sick. You try hard to do it on your own, and here's what I'm telling you. Jesus teaches you to give over your dependence from yourself to God. This is daily bread. This isn't just physical either. This is spiritual. Sometimes it isn't just the need for food on the table, but the motivation to live one more day. Sometimes our need before God are health needs, and you just need God to provide one more doctor's appointment. You see, Jesus teaches us deep dependence on God through prayer. Are you dependent on him? Are you dependent on him? Do you rely on him or on your own strength, on your own finances? Maybe you have a great job and you make loads of money. And you honestly, if we're being real, have kind of been living without God. And my question for you simply is this, how is that working out for you? You may say, great right now. I'm telling you, it's not going to work out great in the end. Daily bread isn't only about dependence to God for daily needs. It's a posture of dependence on him to supply you with everything. You need him. Asking God for each day our daily bread isn't only saying that we couldn't do it on our own, but we refuse to do it on our own. It isn't just saying that nobody in the history of the world has ever succeeded without God. It's saying, I can't have what I truly need without you. 
I can get some of the things maybe, but I can't have what I really need. It's a posture of dependence that says, you are God and I'm not. Lord, give me this day our daily bread. Number four, we see Jesus teaching us to accept deep forgiveness. He says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those Sorry, I just went totally like King James Version, memorized. Uh, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If you're anything like me in this room, and I think you are, you're a sinner. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have messed up in some way. Sometimes, when I go to confess my sins to God, I'm inclined to just tell him how bad I am without accepting the forgiveness part of it. It's going to him and, oh, wretched man that I am. All right, God, have a good day. But there's something deeper. There's something better that he's offering. It's called grace. Let me tell you the story of a man who confessed his sin to the father. One day the son came to his father and said, Dad, give me my inheritance. I'm ready to go. Which essentially means, you're as good as dead to me. I want my money. So the father, though heartbroken, his son was leaving him, gave him his part of the inheritance and let him go on his way. The son went off to a faraway place and began to spend his money like crazy. Just an absolute party animal. As often happens with people who spend their money negligently, he lost everything. He lost his friends, his lavish lifestyle, and a piece of his soul as well. He eventually had to go and work in a pig pen, and some of you are starting to put the pieces together. This is not a story original to me. This is in the Bible. And he was left to eat nothing but pig slop. He came to the realization as he was eating this nasty stuff that the servants in his father's house had it better than he did, and he needed to go home. He's a classic man. He was thinking with his stomach. Uh, He was ready to go home and get some good food. Either way, whatever the motivation, he went home. As he starts down the road, something unusual happens. He sees his father running from a distance towards him. If I were in his shoes, I probably would have freaked out a little bit. I was like, oh shoot, he's running towards me. This is not good. And as the father starts to meet him, you can almost hear the, just this word vomit that's coming. God, or it's like, father, I, I don't, I don't deserve your love. Like, I should just be a servant in your household. And then I'm, I'm imagining, picture with me, the father doesn't even let him finish his thought. The father takes him in, embraces him, tells his servants, hey, go get the best robe. We're throwing a party that my son has come home. Forgiveness entails that your sins have been atoned for and you are able to be reconciled with God. Hear what I'm saying? A lot of us approach God with our sin thinking, he's gonna be so angry at me, like I'm, it's just gonna be judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And what actually happens is something very, very different. Your sin is real. Your sin is deserving of all of those things, and yet the father takes you in like a son and a daughter and says, welcome home. Welcome home. Maybe you're here today, and you have sin that has not been forgiven by the Father, simply because you have not asked for it. Seek forgiveness from the Father today. As you look deeper 
into this prayer of Jesus, you start to realize that being forgiven does not only restore right relationship with God, but also with people. Jesus doesn't just say, forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation. He says, forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive those who are indebted to us. Forgiveness, it seems, is contagious. True forgiveness from God leads to the forgiveness of other people. And I know this is challenging. I like to hold grudges. I like to be the judge of somebody else's decisions and actions. But the forgiveness that we receive from the Father is to go on to the people in our lives who have done us wrong as well. Forgiveness of others starts with a right understanding of how God has forgiven us. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Who am I to judge what others can and cannot be forgiven of when I have sinned against a holy God and he forgave me? Who am I to decide that this person doesn't deserve forgiveness when I committed atrocities against the God of the universe and he still forgave me and took me in as a son? Who am I to not show forgiveness to others? And I'm telling you today, prayer is the soil in which forgiveness is born. When you start to see how forgiven you are by the Father, forgiveness goes into the world to the people that have hurt you. I'm not advocating for you today to stay in abusive situations. I'm not telling you to be a pushover. You can have boundaries and forgive. But I'm telling you, forgiveness is a matter of the heart. Not necessarily a full physical restoration to all that was lost before, but a forgiveness of then and where you are no longer holding it against someone else because the Father is not holding it against you. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is what Jesus models in his prayer. You have the ability to forgive others who hurt you because you are forgiven in Christ. You've heard it said before, hurt people hurt people. In the same way, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. The last thing that Jesus prays for is this. Number five, pray against temptation. He says, and lead us not into temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But, when temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You will face temptations in this life. My grandmother once told me, the devil is handsome and sin is fun. You will face temptations to do things that you should not do, even as a follower of Jesus. And so the question is, if we've been forgiven of our sins, why would we want to go back to our sins? Right? If I've been forgiven from this thing, like we just talked about a second ago, the Father, he embraces us, he, you know, takes us in, why would we want to go back? The answer is this, and a lot of us don't want to admit this, but in secret, we love our sins more than we love God himself. We just really, really, really love the way that the bottle makes us feel. We really, really love the affirmation that we get on social media by posting that one picture. We love the controversy of a good debate on Facebook. 
We love our sin more than we love God. You cannot live a transformational life of prayer and intimacy with God if you desire sin more than you desire God himself. The enemy is cunning and smart, and he will try to coerce your thinking into thinking that you can do that. And so you must pray. This is Jesus saying, hey, I already know what you're going to be facing, so pray this, that God would protect you from the enemy. And here's the beauty. You and I serve a God that gives us strength and sees us and gives us the ability to resist our sin. Let me encourage you with this. The more time we spend in prayer, the more of God we see. And the more of him we see, the better he gets. The more goodness we see, the worse our sin starts to look. And the worse our sin starts to look, the less we fall into sin. Become people of prayer so that you may become so disinterested with sin that you have no choice but to flee. When you give no time to praying, you will have no freedom from sin in your life. When you give no time to praying, you will not be freed from the indwelling sins that overtake you. Prayer is key to spiritual growth. Have you ever gotten in a car that has no gas in it? If you have, I'm sorry, that must have been very awkward. I definitely have never done that before. Because guess what happens? You cannot get it to start. You try to start the car and it's like <laughs> You try to, maybe you even get it into drive and push the gas down, it's not going anywhere. Prayer is like the gasoline that goes in the car. Prayer is the gasoline of the Christian life. It starts it when you accept Christ as your savior. You pray to God and you ask him to forgive you of your sins. Prayer sustains it so that you can keep going forward where you need to go. And prayer delivers you to the destination, which is life with God forever and ever. See, you can be doing all the right things. Reading your Bible, going to church, going to Disciple Now this weekend, being a part of a connection group, tithing, whatever it may be. But if prayer is absent in your life, then you are living a dead faith. Ian Bounds says this, when faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. You may get in the car and you had gas in it, but it, when you stop praying, you stop going forward. All of these things that you do just become things that you do. As the speaker said last night, it just becomes an event on your calendar with no deep transformational life change. When I was 15 years old, as we're winding down, I heard a quote that changed my life. The world has yet to see what God will do through a man who is fully consecrated to him. And this absolutely sparked my 15-year-old imagination. I got excited because I was curious of what it could look like if a man was fully consecrated to God. But I had one hold up. I didn't know how that happened. I wasn't really sure what that looked like. 
Maybe many of you resonate with that statement. When you first got saved, your imagination went wild at what God could do. It was funny, this summer we, we led a guy to Christ um, in about June, and it was on a Sunday morning. That Sunday night he was baptized, and that Tuesday night we had a crossroads summer night, and two people came up and said, yeah, this guy so-and-so invited us. Like, he's been sharing the gospel with us already. I'm like, two days. Two days, and he's already sharing the gospel with people. He didn't know that, you know, we don't really do that kind of stuff. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We need to be doing that kind of stuff. But, but maybe you experience that as well. You, you start in your life with Christ. You start praying, right? You've prayed to accept Christ into your life, and your imagination goes wild on what God could do through your life. So I'm 15 years old, and I'm thinking about it. And then I fell into the deepest, darkest depression of my life. I lost motivation to do anything in the world, but I simply could not stop praying. Night after night, I would fall on my face before God as the enemy would attack my mind with terrible, terrible thoughts. And I would pray, God, where are you? I need you. I would pray Psalm 42, which says, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. This was my prayer for about six months. God, where are you? Then at a disciple now, actually in 2020, the Lord answered my question that I had asked him months before. How does a man become fully consecrated to him? As I was on my knees in prayer, I came to a stark realization. I've accidentally become a person of prayer. I've accidentally developed a habit of prayer. So the question is this, how do we become people of powerful prayer? You spend time praying. There's no magic bullet. There's no secret. It's simply this, you spend time praying on your knees before God. Perfect church people prayer? No. Good southern person prayer? No. Prayer. Prayer before God. If we want to see a move of God across Pensacola, Florida, it's not going to come with fancy lights. It's not going to come with big building projects or committees or programs. It's going to come with God's people getting serious about prayer. It's going to come with you saying to God, God, let your kingdom invade my life. Do whatever you want with me. Have your way, O oh Lord. If you're looking for freedom for sin in your life, become a person of prayer. If you're in a dying marriage and have no hope for the future, become a person of prayer. Because before you know it, when you've prayed time and time again to the Father, you start to look like the thing that you look at. And you start to look more like Him.